Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let me pray. Father, we ask, <clears throat> we ask that as we look at this word that the Holy Spirit superintended, that he really wrote as, as this was penned for the sake of the church, not only the Hebrews to whom are being written in that era, but for the sake of the church in every era, that, that this letter, in this letter, your son, the head of the church, is speaking by his spirit through his word to us. We pray that as we look at this word, as we consider who you are, God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we consider the revelation that is in your Son through whom you created all things, who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who also redeemed us, we pray that you would be rightly exalted, that we would rightly understand your word, that any unbelievers here, those not looking to Christ in faith, not understanding who he is, would come to salvation, and that we as your people, your believers, would be built up in our faith to the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we look up at the heavens, when on some evening we gaze at the stars, which, you know, we can see after it rains here, right? We see their number, and we see their glory, and we, we begin to be struck with a kind of awe or wonder, don't we? We wonder at the immensity of the universe with, with its innumerable stars, we wonder at the intricacy of its design. We wonder at the magnificence of its beauty. But when, when you contemplate creation, my question is, what is the first thought you ought to have? When you're wondering at the magnificence of the creation, its beauty, its design, what is the first thought you ought to have? What is the first word you ought to hear. And, and here's what I would argue it is. God is, and he is not silent. God is. When I look at the stars, I should hear the word, God is, and he is not silent. When I consider the intricacy of the human body, I should think, God is, and he is not silent. When I look at anything in all of creation, I should be overwhelmed with the sense that God is, and he is not silent. The creator eternally communicates. Did you hear that? He is never silent. He is certainly not silent in creation. If Keep your hand in Hebrews 1 and look back nearly to the middle of your Bible at Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And verse 1, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Yes, that little superscript there that says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, um, is part of the original text. You're being told this is a psalm, this is a song, this is, this is the way in which they're worshiping in the context of corporate worship. They're singing this. And who wrote this song? David, the king of Israel, wrote this song. And listen to what they're singing 
Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare. Do you hear that? They're speaking. They're declaring. They're pronouncing. They're preaching. They're proclaiming. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals Knowledge. Listen, our whole series on the Trinity, this series we've been doing on the Trinity now in our 13th week on who is our triune God and what does that matter, what difference does it make, has thus far contended that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God, one substance, three persons, in eternal communion with one another. One glorious God in three co-eternal and infinitely loving persons. Now, we don't often think about words, but words matter, don't they? In a day in which truth is being degraded, so are the value of words being degraded. But the fact is, words matter. And when we talk about being in communion... We are necessarily talking about communication. You hear the similarity between those two words? When you commune with someone, you communicate with them. If there is no communication, there is no communion. If there is communion, there is communication. To be in eternal communion, as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are, is to eternally communicate. I think this is something we understand. God does not have a word. Now, when I get to the Trinity and worship in a few weeks, and I talk about the Trinity and preaching, I'm going to emphasize this more. But I want you to understand, if you go to Islam, Islam claims that Allah has a word, a, a book, a book that eternally is, is next to him. It's a word he has, he possesses in a particular way. It isn't him. It's something he has. Christianity is not contending that God has a word. We are contending that God is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The Father is eternally communicating in the Son and by the Spirit, and this speaking God, this communicating God, this communing God voluntarily not necessarily. He didn't have to create anything. He didn't have any need. He didn't have any want. He wasn't up there feeling emotionally distant. This eternally communicating God voluntarily chose to create, to speak this universe into being, and to communicate with his creation. That ought to bring and be really the great joy of the work of science. The word science just means knowledge. You know that, right? When you come at science, you're coming at a particular kind of knowledge. And the knowledge you're coming at in what we typically call the hard sciences, um, the science of chemistry or physics or biology or geology, is the knowledge, listen, the study of God's speech in creation. That, that ought to give scientists great joy. They are studying God's speech in creation. And we're hearing him speak in creation of his own beauty and his own magnificence, his own order, telos, the purpose for which things are done, his own glory. But are we hearing that glorious declaration? I mean, honestly, when you study biology or physics or chemistry or, I mean, most of you are out of high school now and you're like, I'm never studying that stuff again. But some of you are. When you're just observing beautiful things in creation, are you hearing God speak? Are you hearing him proclaim to you that he is the glorious creator of these things? Sadly, we're not hearing it rightly, precisely because of our sin. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. 
It's about midway through your New Testament. If you're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. If you're at 1st, 2nd Corinthians, etc., you've gone too far. But Romans chapter 1. Paul addresses this after he declares, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. He then says, why do we need the righteousness of God that is not our own that we only receive through faith? Why do we need that good news that saves us? And then he goes on in verse 18 to tell you why you need that good news of the righteousness of God in Christ, for the wrath, for, that's connecting word, for the wrath of God is revealed, presently revealed, from heaven, against what? Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, verse 18, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You hear what our natural state is? We are unrighteous, ungodly people in our natural state who suppress the truth. To suppress the truth is to stand over it and push it down. To make ourselves lord over the truth. And what is the truth which we are suppressing? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Where? For his invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You can't say you didn't know God is and that he is not silent. You can't say that you didn't know that God created and that you're the creature. You can't even say that you didn't know that you're violating God's righteous law and that you deserve death for such violation. Look what he goes on to say. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You notice what happens there? They know God. There are, God doesn't believe in atheists. Do you know that? doesn't believe in them. They know he exists. They know he exists. What's the problem? They don't honor him as God nor give him thanks. Look what he goes on to say. But they became futile in their thinking. Their minds have become deluded and futile in their thinking because of their unrighteousness, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their hearts are turned against him. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they turned from the glory of the creator to the glory of the creation, and their worship went there. And he says that, that we're given over then to our sin. And he goes on, and look at verse 32 at the bottom of Romans 1. Though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So we're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. But God refuses to be unheard by his people. He will be heard by his people. This is so because God is a speaking God, a loving God, a gracious God, and thus while he spoke clearly enough in creation to leave us without excuse in our condemnation, he spoke even more clearly in sacred scripture for us and our salvation. He spoke most clearly in scripture in the word of God. Now, how did he speak? God spoke first through the prophets of the Old Testament. Look at Hebrews 1.1. I say all that to set up Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways. In other words, through various dispensations or ages or, or workings of God. Long ago, meaning in a past time through various times in which God worked, and in many ways, through various means, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In other words, 
God has spoken in the past. And God has spoken to our fathers. In other words, the Old Testament saints by the prophets that he had sent. And he spoke to them at various times. He spoke to Moses. He spoke to Joshua. He spoke, you guys follow me on this? Okay, I could keep going, right? Ezekiel, Isaiah, he spoke to them, to various prophets, and he spoke to them at various times in history over a couple thousand year period. He spoke to them. He spoke to them in various ways. He spoke to them through dreams and visions, and he spoke directly to them in direct speech. There's a variety of ways in which he spoke to them. He spoke, but he spoke. Long ago, at many times in many ways, he spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now look, God's voice is heard first through Moses. God speaks first to us through Moses. And Moses writes as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what does Moses write? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay? Now there are some sections of Deuteronomy and potentially others that, that Moses doesn't write. Like he doesn't write about his own death. That's difficult to do, right? Okay? So you follow, okay? But he writes the majority of what we would call the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And look at what he starts out with. Look at, keep your hand in Hebrews 1, and look at Genesis 1. Now you guys are wildly familiar with this passage because you've heard it over and over and over again, but I'm going to read it anyway. Genesis 1 and verse 1, God spoke in the beginning This is Moses, the first speech we have of God in sacred scripture through Moses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. In other words, disordered. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Light had not yet shined into it, right? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, or listen, notice this, and God spoke, let there be light. And there was light. How does light come to be? By a speech act of our communicating God. He spoke, light be, and light was. And God laid out through Moses his well-ordered and good creation in the space of six days. He lays that out. The first three days, he lays out the forming of creation. And the next three days, he lays out the filling of creation. First, you have light. And you have sun and moon and stars in day four. Day one, light. Day four, sun and moon and stars. And then you have uh, the separation of the, the water and the sky in day two. And then in day five, you have birds of the air and fish of the sea. And then in day three, you have the dry ground separating from the seas. And in day six, you have the animals, the land animals, and humanity forming in three days, filling in three days. And he drives each of those days first to the crown of his creation. That's where he drives them. He drives each of those days, those six days, right to the sixth day to his image bearer, to mankind. Man was to reflect his glory across the earth. So look at verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Notice he's speaking man into being. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And now notice, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. With what? Image bearers of God. What does an image bearer do? It reflects the truth back to that whose image it's bearing. And so, Fill the earth with those who reflect my glorious character back to me. Unfortunately, because of sin, we end up reflecting a lie rather than the truth. 
So he drives it at this pinnacle of creation, if you will, mankind, the apex. But second, he drives it a step further. He drives that creation account one day further toward his ultimate purpose, which is his glory being communicated to and enjoyed and worshipped by his creature on the seventh day. Day seven, chapter two and verse one of Genesis. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested. Doesn't mean God's tired, okay? It's not like God is exhausted, he's worn out. This was hard work, okay? He just spoke and it happened. It didn't wear him out. The rest is the idea that he's ceasing his creative activity. He's not ceasing to work. He's still going to govern or providentially, if you will, lead all of his creation, sustain all of his creation, work in all his creation, but we're, we're not going to get to that till next week. And he's going to re- do the work of redemption. But here he's talking about the work of creation. He rested. And on the seventh day, from all his work that he had done, and look at verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. It is the day that's made holy because on it, God rested from all his works that he had done in all creation. In other words, this is God driving us to the fact that we were created to reflect his glory across the earth and to enjoy him communicating to us himself in worship. Moses then records that God communicated with Adam. God spoke to Adam and the first man and made a covenant with him. If he would trust the Lord and obey his word, he would have everlasting blessedness. If he violates his word, if he disobeys the covenant and fell into sin, he would die. Look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now we're told that after Adam is given this command in Genesis 3, he disobeys God. Genesis 3, Satan comes into the garden, tempts Eve and Adam and Eve. Adam being with Eve, fall into sin, they disobey God, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they die. Adam did not listen to God's word. And as a result of not hearing or listening to God communicating to him. Do you hear that? To his speech to him. Sin and death and condemnation came for us all. As God cursed Satan in that scene. Because God then goes on to give curses instead of blessings. And as he curses Satan in that scene, he communicates to us and to all mankind, the first promise of salvation that we hear from a prophet. So look at Genesis 3.15. So God isn't done communicating. He's going to communicate the word of our salvation. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I will put enmity between you. That's the serpent or Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he... The offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, that seed of the woman who would come, that son of man and son of God is then traced throughout the Old Testament until he finally arrives. That's why this is called Genesis 3.15, the mother promise. It is the promise which gives birth to all other promises about the seed of the woman or the son or the Messiah or the Savior, the one who would come and crush the skull of Satan and so save God's people. And throughout the Old Testament, we are getting pointed forward to him until he finally arrives being born of the womb of Mary. As the Holy Spirit hovers over her womb in the same way the Holy Spirit was hovering over creation. This son who was born was himself the son of God, Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The coming of the seed of the woman. The fulfillment of the promise that begins in Genesis 3.15 and that has progressively unfolded throughout the rest of the Old Testament until he comes through Mary. So God is a speaking God. He communicates. 
He speaks in creation. He speaks in the prophets of the Old Testament. And finally, and most gloriously, he has spoken in his son. That's, did you hear that? Did, did you hear what I just said? Because it's not something I just want you to gloss over quickly. God's speech, God speaks, if you will, in his son. To us, God's speech in his son will be compared in Hebrews 1 to God's speech in the Old Testament through the prophets. So go back to Hebrews 1. Long ago at many times in many ways, verse 1, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's just what we went over. But in these last days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now we can translate by the prophets in the prophets and by his son in the son or in his son. Um, the point is he's spoken in or by the son. Most gloriously, he's being compared to the Old Testament prophets. And what are we hearing about God's speech in the Son? It is so much greater than his speech in the past. In other words, God speaking in the Son is far superior, infinitely superior to his speech prior to his speaking in the Son. Now, you you might uh, follow up with a question, well, in what way is it greater than his speech in the past? Well, let me say this. It's not greater or better in the sense that God's word in the Old Testament is less true. Hear me on that? It's not saying the Old Testament is less true or the Old Testament is less powerful. So the question is, in what sense is this speech now in the Son better than God's speech in the Old Testament and better than God's speech in creation? So let me give you two answers. Here's the first one. You understand the question we're looking at? How is God speaking in his Son greater than his speaking in the Old Testament, and how is it greater than his speaking in creation? Okay, Two answers. One, God's speech now is better like a person is better than his shadow. Did you hear that? Okay, You are persons, right? You walk around, you have shadows that you cast when the sun comes. Okay, Does the shadow tell the truth about you? Yes, it's casting a shadow. Okay, In some sense, it's picking up your form, it's pointing to you. God's, but what I'm saying is the Old Testament is like a shadow. Okay? And God's speech in the Son is greater like the person is greater than his shadow. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 again. But in these last days. Now these last days, it's, it's, this is kind of interesting language because it's a very technical kind of language. Last days. It's pointing to the eschaton. What is the eschaton? Eschatos, or eschaton in Greek, is is the idea of last things. These final days. This final age. In, In other words, this final redemptive period. We're in the last days. People say, oh, the last days are coming. We've been in them since Christ came and died and resurrected and poured out his spirit. We've been in them. They were in them in the first century when this is written. Hear that? So if they were in the last days in the first century when this is written, then what are you in? Are there any days after the last days? Okay, just easy math. No. There are no days after the last days because they are the last days. You follow follow that? So in redemptive history, the last days aren't coming. They're here. They've been here for 2,000 years. What do they refer to? They refer to the final period of redemptive history, if you will. It's a reference to the fact that in every previous age, God spoke in various ways and in various times through various prophets, all of whom were pointing to this great age, this great day. Every age that came before this age was anticipating this day, these last days, when the Christ would come. Look at 1 Peter, 1 Peter and chapter 1, just, just right after the book of Hebrews. I mean, James is immediately, but James is short. So 1 Peter chapter 1, and look at verse 10. 
Concerning the salvation, he's just talked about our salvation. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. You hear that? He's talking about Old Testament prophets prophesying about the grace that was to be these new covenant saints. Grace that was to be yours. Searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time. Now check this out, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They were wanting to know the spirit of the Christ is in them and through those Old Testament prophets prophesying this salvation which was to be yours. Now look what he says. They're wondering to know when is that? And it says, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. In other words, Old Testament prophets were told that the Christ isn't coming in their era. He's coming in yours. That's what he's saying. They were pointing forward. They were pointing forward to the last days when the Christ would come. You might say that every time we celebrate Christmas, we participate in announcing to people the last days. Right? They're here. The Christ has come. You don't think about that this Christmas when you're sitting around the fire with your children. Children, this is an eschatological event we're celebrating. Okay? <laughs> Nobody talks that way. <laughs> Talking about the last days. All right? But that's what we're celebrating. He's come. All the Old Testament prophets were pointing to these days, the arrival of the Son of God, the seed of the woman. Christ was testifying. Christ was preaching in the Old Testament. Do you hear that? He was preaching in the Old Testament by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament prophets about these days, his own coming, the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God. In other words, who's the primary preacher in the Old Testament? The divine person of the Christ through the prophets. So this New Testament revelation is better in the sense that what has been talked about, pointed to, prophesied, that day has arrived. Look back at Hebrews and go to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to try to narrow down the case I can make here, but just to continue to make it Verse 1, now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. And there's the high priest Christ is being compared to the priests of Israel, the, the Levitical priests. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of, mag, of the majesty in heaven, a minister in holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In other words, man had set up the tabernacle or that tent, but this tent the Lord set up, heaven for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve. Now, notice, what is he saying about the Levitical priests, the Old Testament priests? They serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, the, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. Christ is the true tent, if you will. He is. Let, John 1.14, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. But who can make perfect those who draw near? The Christ, the substance, not the shadow. The shadow pointed to the person, but the person is so much greater than the shadow. Look at the end of chapter 11. We have this 
faith hall of fame, if you will, in chapter 11 as it speaks of all these Old Testament saints and go to verse 39 as it sweeps through the faith of the Old Testament saints who are saved. And it comes to verse 39 and it says this, and all these, by the way, it talks about Abel, it talks about Abraham, it talks about Moses, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what is promised. That doesn't mean they didn't get saved. What was promised is the coming of the Messiah. Now look what it says. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In other words, Christ comes and saves them. The Old Testament saints and us. The Old Testament prophecy was pointing forward to these last days in types and shadows, but now the substance has come. Christ was in his divine person prophesying throughout the Old Testament by the Holy Spirit through the prophets. Now Christ, in his divine person, has become incarnate. He's taken on humanity and taught us as one of us. And as the incarnate Christ, he has received the Holy Spirit without measure. And at Pentecost, he poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church. So we see the shadow of Jesus cast across the whole Old Testament, but we see him incarnate in his person walking among us in these last days. Having him is so much better than having his shadow. And thus, if we should have listened to the saving message that the Son was communicating in the Old Testament by the Spirit through the prophets and types and shadows, how much more Should we listen to the Son who has come in the flesh, who has the Spirit without measure, and who's seated at the right hand of the Father, pouring out the Holy Spirit upon us, the church? Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. He's going to make this application. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's talking about the angels present at Mount Sinai in the giving of the law. Since it proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, if the Old Testament message proved to be reliable and that's proclaimed by angels then how is the New Testament message, how reliable is it when it's proclaimed by the Son who is superior to the angels, to whom the angels bow? How should we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, Jesus. And it was attested to us by those who heard the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now listen, I could preach a whole series of sermons of sermons on how the Old Testament is pointing forward to this day. But let me skip that and turn to the second way this speech of God is better than speech in the Old Testament so I can get to this question of the creation. So here's the second way. It's not only greater in that, in like a shadow is, or a person is greater than a shadow, but God's speech is better like the master is better than the servants. Hear that? God's speech is better in the New Testament in Christ like the master is better than his servants. Look at Hebrews 1-2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The point here is that, that before he spoke in the prophets, but now he speaks to us in the son. We must understand that God's speech is greater because the son himself is now speaking. Jesus is the son. All else are servants. You think of our salvation like a house that God is building so that he might dwell with us and us with him. I mean, that's an appropriate image because of the New Testament. He builds this, I mean, the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. He builds this house where he dwells and his people dwell with him there. Now think of the church, if you will, as a house that God is building. Salvation is a house he's building so that he might dwell with us and us with him. Throughout the Old Testament, the Son was building a house by his spirit through his servants, the prophets. But now 
the master of the house himself, the heir, the son, has come. The one to whom it all belongs has come, has come, and now he's building the house in the flesh. Look at, look at Hebrews chapter 3. Keep your hand in chapter 1 and look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, in other words, you've been saved, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So the master, the son, the heir is far better than the servant's. And here in Hebrews 1, 2 through 4, the author of Hebrews gives us six descriptions. I'm not going to go over them today, all of them anyway. He gives us six descriptions of the Son. I'll pick some up next week to demonstrate the superiority of the Son. But, but let's look quickly at them. Verse 2, he's spoken to us by his Son. Now look at the next phrase, first, first descriptor, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now look at the next phrase, second descriptor, through whom he also created the world. Now look at the next phrase about the Son, third descriptor. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Fourth descriptor, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Fifth descriptor, after making purification for sins, in other words, he's the purification for sins. Sixth descriptor, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, I want to take briefly the first three descriptors. We'll look at the next three next week, but these are going to come kind of quick at you. Who is this master, this son? First, he's appointed, he's appointed the heir of all things. See that? He's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. God the Father is the subject here. He's the one who's appointing. How do we know that? Because God's son is referenced. And what if... What, what do sons have? Fathers. Okay. So God the Father has appointed his son, the son, the heir of all things. Now this is speaking of Jesus, the one who is fully God and fully man, the Messiah who is appointed to be the heir of all things. As the Messiah, the incarnate Christ, he is promised to be the heir of all things in numerous places. But just to make it quick, look down at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now that's a quotation from David overhearing the father speaking to his son in Psalm 2.7. And what does Psalm 2.8 say? The next verse says this, ask of me, the father speaking to his son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. See, we see that Israel's messianic king, the incarnate son of God, was prophesied and appointed the heir of all things. But that's precisely because he is rightfully the heir of all things. That's why he's appointed to it. The son of God is eternally the heir of all things. When was he begotten? He was eternally begotten. When was he covenanted a kingdom? He was covenanted, uh, and when was he covenanted to be the heir of all things? Eternally. The Father eternally decreed to unite all things in the Son, to give him all things as inheritance. We looked at that in Ephesians 1. But look at Hebrews 1.13, just in the same passage. Go down. And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's a quotation from Psalm 110. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, right? Sit at my right hand and tell I make all your enemies your footstool. In other words, here's the Father speaking to the Son in eternity past, decreeing you, you will be Lord of all things. You'll inherit all things. You're the appointed heir of all things. So this was decreed in eternity past and prophesied in and carried out in history 
But, but why was the Son of God eternally decreed and historically prophesied to be the heir of all things? Why do all things belong to the Son? Because of who the Son is from the beginning. So you have to get to. Why is the Son appointed the heir of all things? That's the logic Hebrews is going to get you to by driving you to the next point. Because of who the Son is from the beginning. This is the second descriptor. He is the creator of all things. Look at that. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. It was through the Son that everything was created. The heavens and the earth were created through him. Hebrews 1 and verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now look, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your ears, your years, sorry, have no end. Not his ears have no end. His years have no end, though he can hear you. That's true, too. All the heavens and earth are created through him. That's why he's the Lord of them. That's why he's the appointed heir of them. That's what he, Paul gets at in Colossians 1, 15 and 16 when he says that, that, that Christ is the firstborn over all creation, the prototokos. That doesn't mean he's the first thing made. That's referencing the fact that he has the supremacy over it, that he's the heir. What is the firstborn in the family? He's the heir. He's the heir of all things. And he says, and it's through him that all things were created and for him that all things were created in Colossians 1, 15 and 16. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that Word, we're told, became flesh and dwelt among us. It's speaking about Jesus. But look what it says. He was God, and it says, right, and, and God made all things through him. There was nothing that was made that has been made that was not made through him. The word or the wisdom of God is that through which God created all things. That's why Genesis 1, 1 through 3 says in the beginning and John 1, 1 says in the beginning. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God and all things were created through the word. That's why Genesis 1, 3 says and God spoke. Because he created through the word. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now listen to Psalm, for example, 33, 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth all their host. There you have the Son and the Holy Spirit. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. That's what you're getting at in Proverbs 8 when it says that wisdom is always with the Lord, and through his wisdom, everything was created, and wisdom is there personified, rejoicing in God and his creation, and then Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that Christ is the wisdom of God. So we recognize the Trinitarian, that, excuse me, creation is a Trinitarian work. We have one God, and the creation is the undivided work of the one Trinitarian creator. Undivided work of the one Trinitarian creator. But we can distinguish what is attributed to each person in creation. We can, what is eminently attributed, if you will. What is largely ascribed to the Father. What is largely ascribed to the Son. What is largely ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Though they're one God, and so their creation is one work. But look at how that's done by Paul. Keep your hand in Hebrews 1. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul says this quite helpfully, I think. Verse 6. Yet for us, he's talking about the pagans who have all their gods. And he turns in verse 6 in comparison and says, Yet for us, or contrast, yet for us there is one God. The Father... Now notice that preposition, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. You hear that? He's the one from whom are all things. The Father, 
He is the one from whom are all things. He is what we might call the originating cause. Now, do all things come from the whole Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes, the one God, yes. But we imminently attribute the one or the originating cause to the Father, the one from whom they are. It's where prepositions become really important. We don't pay much attention to them, but they are important. He is what we might call originating cause. He's the fount of all deity. He is the one from whom the Son and the Holy Spirit proceed. He is attributed also as the one from whom the act of creation originates. Now look at the next phrase. And one Lord Jesus Christ through, notice the change in preposition, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So the Father is the one from whom and the Son, he is the one through whom are all things. In other words, the Son is the agent, the agent through whom all things um, that are created are created. You, when you think of agent, a lot of people hear the word through and they think of instrument, like he's just the instrument. You know, Chase is up here playing his guitar, and Chase, that, the, the guitar was his instrument. And they think of Christ, the word, being instrumental in the sense that as the Father is essentially strumming the guitar and, you know, like an instrument, and out comes the music, you follow? Okay. But understand, that's not what we're talking about when we say through with regard to the Son. He isn't just this passive instrument that the Father speaks out. He is God. He necessarily can't be just some instrument God uses. He is effective and powerful. He's the agent through whom all um, that is created is created. He's also the example of all creation in that he is the Word or the wisdom of God in whom God created all that was created. Now you might go, what in the world does that mean? Let me try to give you an illustration. Now, notice it's an analogy. It doesn't go and fit in every regard, okay? But the creation comes forth from the mind of God. I'm stealing this from St. Augustine. The creation comes forth from the mind of God as art comes forth from the mind of an artist. Augustine actually called the Son, or the Word, the art of the Father. What does he mean by that? The artist has the painting in his mind before he paints it then he paints it. Or the architect has the house in his mind before he draws the design and builds it, and then he designs and builds it. The Father speaks through the Son, if you will, who is the wisdom or word of God in his mind. He speaks out and the universe leaps into existence. But what about the Holy Spirit? What, what role does the Holy Spirit play in all this? Well, the Holy Spirit is the one in Genesis 1-2 who's hovering or brooding over the surface of the, of the deep, over the darkness and the void. He is the, he is the one taking the disordered creation and ordering it to its proper end. He is the breath of God who God breathes into Adam and gives him life. Thus we can say he's the spirit of life. He's the vital principle that brings what is potential to being actual. So if you've conceived a word in your mind to speak, that potential word doesn't become actual until it's what? breathed out. He is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies, if you will, and perfects God's work. He is the same Holy Spirit who broods over the womb of Mary. That's not incidental, folks, in the Bible. He's brooding over the creation while it's disordered, the original creation. And then he's brooding over the womb of Mary, bringing into being what? The new creation. The original creation is in Christ, through Christ. The new creation is through Christ, who is brooding in both cases, the Holy Spirit. Who is Christ, the Word of God? Who is the Spirit, the breath of God? We might say the Holy Spirit is the perfecting cause of creation and new creation. He brings all things to their proper end. He completes and perfects. That's why we talk about the Holy Spirit in our sanctification or in the application. When God speaks the Word, the Spirit the breath of God carries it forth to its proper end. So the whole of creation is the undivided work of our triune Lord and the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, is the one through whom everything is created. The Son is appointed the heir of all things. He is the one through whom all things is created, are created. He is God, which leads to the final description. And just really quickly, because I'm going to pick this up next week. He is God radiating forth. Do you see that? Look at verse 3 of Hebrews 1. and I'll, I'm going to pick this up again next week, so we'll be brief. He is the radiance, that's Jesus, the Son, 
is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This means that the sun is the shining forth of God's glory as beams of light from the sun above us reveal to us the light of the sun, so the son of the Father shines forth revealing to us the glory of the Father. He can do this because he is the son of the Father. In fact, he is the exact imprint of his nature. That literally means he is the same substance as the Father. They are one substance or one God. And the Son is the ultimate revelation of God. That's precisely what John is saying in his prologue. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, or verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only begotten God, that's the Son, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And because he is who he is, the Son, the appointed heir, the one through whom all things are created, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, the one to whom the whole Old Testament points, because that is true, how much greater a revelation do we have in Jesus Christ than they had in the Old Testament? He is the one who spoke the original creation into existence. Thus, it is fitting that he is also the one who spoke the new creation into being. As the Holy Spirit hovered over the original creation, it is fitting that he also hovers over Mary, bringing into being the new creation. As the Holy Spirit breathed life into the first Adam, it is fitting that he was there in the beginning of our new life, breathing life, if you will, into the second Adam, Jesus, and into us. As the Son is the wisdom and word of God in the original creation, it is only fitting that the Son is the one in whom all things are summed up, reconciled, redeemed, revealed. I, I don't know if you hear how grand the New Testament revelation of Jesus Christ is. Now, it's not somehow more true as the word of God than the Old Testament. Rather, it's where the Old Testament finds its yes and amen. It's where the types and shadows are eclipsed by their substance. It's where the Father's glory reaches its full shining forth in His Son, the Creator of all things, the Heir and Lord of all things, your triune Lord, has spoken, and His Word is your salvation. Raymond Brown said it this way, the letter to the Hebrews begins by asserting the greatest single fact of the Christian revelation. You ready for it? God has spoken to man through his word in the Bible and through his son, Jesus. In Christ, God has closed the greatest communication gap of all time. That which exists between a holy God and a sinful mankind. And that communication gap being closed in Christ is our salvation. Can we have a better savior revealed to us than he who is the heir of all things? The one through whom all things were created who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So here's my question. Are you listening to his word? I gave you a lot of it this morning. Are you listening to his word? Do you hear him? Do you trust him? This is the message of Hebrews to us. Whether Christian or not, if God has revealed himself in his son, if God has given us such a great salvation, then we need to listen, to hear, to believe. Listen to how Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century British preacher, reflects on this, because I think it's so helpful. I love to think that he who created all things is also our Savior. For then he can create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit in me. And if I need a complete new creation, as I certainly do, he is equal to the task. Man cannot create the tiniest midge that ever danced in the summer evening's ray. Man cannot create even a single grain of dust, but Christ created all worlds. So he can make us new creatures by the wondrous power of his grace. Oh, sinners, See what a mighty Savior has been provided for you. And never say that I cannot trust him. I agree with good Mr. Hyatt, a friend of Spurgeon's, who when he was asked on his deathbed, can you trust Christ with your soul? Answered, if I had a million souls, I could trust him with them all. 
And so may you, if you had as many souls as God has ever created, and if you had heaped upon you all the sins that men have ever committed, you might trust in him who is the Son of God, whom he hath appointed the heir of all things, by whom he also made the world. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would be a people who are humbled by the fact that we are creatures of you, our great creator. Humbled by the fact that you have communicated to us in creation and that as a result of our sin and condemnation, you began to communicate an even better word to us, the word of our salvation through the prophets of the Old Testament to our fathers and and most expressly in an infinitely superior way in your own Son, whom you appointed the heir of all things, through whom you also created the world, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, who upholds the universe with the word of his power, who has made purification for our sins, and after doing so, who sat down at your right hand, where he rules and reigns. Father, we pray that we would trust in Jesus, that we would look to him as our Savior, that we would know that he is is well-fitted to the task, that he can save us to the uttermost. And may we have great joy in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.